Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman. And I'm Ethan Ennels, sitting in for Eve Simmons. And we're health journalists, which means we spend our lives asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have to. This week, we are talking about vaccine injury. 18 months on from the first jab, what do we know about side effects? As always, we'd like to know what you think. If you've got a question or have something to say, you can do so on Twitter using the hashtag MedicalMinefield. So the reason we're talking about this is because over the last couple of weeks, there's been a whole social media storm over the Pfizer documents hashtag. Um, <laughs> I believe at the beginning of April or mid, mid-April, Pfizer started releasing documents related to safety data. They'd been ordered to do so by a US judge. And uh, people began talking about these apparent revelations in, in the documents that, that there were tens of thousands of adverse events within months of the vaccines going online and uh, more than a thousand deaths, I believe. And there was other claims circulating as well that the jab was only 12 percent effective and all sorts of things. I mean, if you if you type vaccine injury, I, I hadn't until before this podcast, preparing for this podcast, if you type vaccine injury into any social media search engine, it's enough to give you nightmares. You know, you get pictures of rotting limbs and uh, faces and uh, people p- posting pictures of their heart scans that show the heart in some kind of mutant state. You know, it really is terrifying. And, and, and then when you read the, uh, I suppose, mainstream media analyses of these kinds of claims, they call them false. They go through the claims and and they have these barometers, fact-checking barometers, and it gets dismissed completely. But that's not true, is it? I think it's really fascinating. This all took off at the beginning of May when these Pfizer documents were picked up by a far-right Trump-supporting congresswoman in America called Marjorie Taylor Greene. Within a few hours of her tweeting it, it was one of the most trending topics on Twitter. And a lot of these fact-checking websites and mainstream media companies were quick to say that Marjorie Taylor Greene was posting misleading information. But in fact, the documents which she posted are genuine. The Pfizer documents do show that there were 158,000 adverse events around the world after people had their vaccine. And of those 158,000, 1,200 died. That's not misleading. That's a very genuine number. But I think the important thing to remember is 1,200 people is a very, very small number when more than a billion vaccines have now been given up worldwide. But calling it false doesn't really help the case, does it? Because it makes it look like something's being covered up. No, it, it adds fuel to the fire. As uh, as many people say, you're either very pro-vaccine, you're very anti-vaccine. And the people who are very anti-vaccine see these claims and then they see the so-called trusted media attempting to shut them down. I mean, we know Twitter and Facebook often flag stuff yeah. as misinformation. Well, it happened to us. Eve Simmons's piece on analysing the uh, COVID deaths and mistakes made on COVID death certificates caused a huge storm on Twitter um, because uh, they, they branded this misinformation when it was absolutely not. It was, uh, you know, it was just Totally. A, a and I, I think a lot of people believe that these media companies are too trigger happy with the warnings, that they mm. don't want to have serious conversations about vaccine side effects which sadly do happen and we've obviously gone 18 months now where we've we've learned that the vaccines are 
primarily very safe and very effective. But now, increasingly, I think it's important that we start talking about the fact that, that for many people that wasn't the case. But until now, it's been quite difficult to have that conversation because, you know, we all want to promote this vaccine, which has allowed us to move on from the pandemic. Mm. But there are some tricky questions to be had, and, and it's not helpful to shut down people and saying they're misleading. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we talk about one in a million side effects, but it's no good when you're that one in a million. If you are the one in a million who gets a blood clot after having the jab and ends up almost dying and disabled or whatever it is, being told that it's rare isn't going to really help. Yeah, totally. And I remember when the AstraZeneca blood clot debacle was taking place when we saw more and more people coming forward with these blood clots in the brain. I mean, one example was a BBC news reporter, uh, Lisa Shaw, who presented on BBC Radio Newcastle. She was only 44, perfectly healthy and suffered a brain hemorrhage as a result of the AstraZeneca vaccine and died within days. Mm. Uh, And it's tragic. And it's also very difficult to talk about and very uncomfortable for a lot of people. And it it really shouldn't be. You know, I mean, last week I got a bit of flack on Twitter. I was writing about supposed side effects from a drug given to people with a condition called cystic fibrosis. And a group of patients had approached me saying that they'd been suffering psychiatric problems, that they'd been suffering depression. They'd never had depression before. Uh, They started taking this medicine and had developed terrible depression. Some of them had had suicidal thoughts. I was told of one case where someone attempted suicide after taking this medicine. Doctors hadn't warned them about it. They had no idea this could be a problem. The drug company won't admit that it's a side effect because it wasn't seen in the clinical trials which only featured a few hundred people so it's it's perhaps some parallels could be drawn i was criticized for casting doubt on a drug that was so life-saving you know it was expected that people who would once died at 35 will now live into old age because of this medicine and saying something negative about it was seen as almost heretical And someone was essentially accusing me of having blood on my hands that I could be encouraging someone not to take it, who might might have saved their life. And I suppose it's it's a similar thing. But the patients who approached me were desperate for their stories to be heard because, you know, their lives had been changed, not for the better. And until the drug companies actually sit up and take notice and until... I suppose, you know, the health service sits up and take notice in these kinds of situations. People aren't warned and people aren't prepared for the fact that things can go wrong. And also, I suppose, if it's not recognised, people aren't then compensated. And uh, that sort of brings us on to our first guest. On the line now, we have solicitor Sarah Moore from Housefield Law Firm, who are representing 95 victims suffering long-term COVID vaccine injury. Sarah, thanks very much for finding time to talk to us. A lot's been said about vaccine injury on social media, and and a lot of it seems to be hearsay. But you have first-hand experience of people who are suffering these problems. Could you start by telling us what people are going through? What, What have people faced with vaccine injury? So I think it's really important to understand that there are a small group, and they are a relatively small group, of course, in the context of a a nationwide vaccination programme, who have been significantly affected as a consequence of vaccine injury. Those kinds of illnesses include blood clots, which, of course, are now accepted to be a consequence, a very rare side effect, but a a consequence of of vaccination and also bereavement secondary to those blood clot phenomenons. So so these are people who've died? 
Yeah, so so we Gosh. within our ninety five we've got both people who've been significantly neurologically affected with unknown prognoses in terms of what kind of life they will go on to live. So some some survivors, but also a group of individuals who are bereaved and who are now seeking some form of acknowledgement or compensation from the government in light of those bereavements. They're a small group, but they're an important group. And I think it's really important to remember that they exist. I think the vaccination programme has been hugely successful. We know this vaccine is is safe for the vast majority of us, but there are small people for whom it hasn't been safe. And far from delivering a way out of the pandemic for those people, it's delivered them into a, a sort of waking nightmare, I think. Because not only do they have to deal with, in some instances, the fact of bereavement or caring for loved ones, and the financial difficulties that perhaps losing a wage earner creates for a family. But they also do that against the backdrop in which it's not okay to say that there is any problem with the vaccines. And they're very mindful of that. I think they feel guilty. They feel like a dirty secret almost, because understandably in rolling out the vaccine, there's been a big encouragement in vaccine confidence. And that's absolutely right. We know the vaccine is safe for the majority, but for some it hasn't been. And, and there's been nobody who's been willing really to hear their stories, to acknowledge them and to help them to date. Sarah, would you be able to give us a brief example of one of these families affected? Yeah, absolutely. So of the 95 families, there include lots of young families. One family in particular, the husband, who was a gentleman in his early 40s, went for vaccination like we all did. It was the AstraZeneca vaccine. He unfortunately had a very significant reaction about 10 days after vaccination and was diagnosed eventually with vaccine-induced thrombocytic thrombocytopenia, so the blood clot that we were talking about. He went into a coma and his wife was called into the hospital effectively to say goodbye to him. Very fortunately, the story ends a little more happily in that he is now out of hospital. He's back with his family, but he is still recovering neurologically. So there's a big question mark about what he'll be able to do in terms of work, in terms of physical mobility, in terms of sort of caring for himself, his own personal care needs. And in that instance, his wife had just given birth. So they had two small children. She can't work at the moment because she's looking after her husband. Her maternity leave has ended. So there is little money coming into the house. And Obviously, they're all dealing with their own trauma as well, including the, the two young children after what has happened. So I think that's a good example of a family who could make a lot of use out of financial support. That could take one worry away here. But far from the government stepping up and providing that support, they've largely ignored her cry for help. In fact, it's worse, I suppose, in some ways, in that in that particular instance, we wrote to Boris Johnson last August and he acknowledged the case. He said that she was not just a statistic, that this was a really important issue and his government would respond. It's now May and we've had no response. So he did worse than just ignoring, I suppose. He raised an expectation that they would help and they haven't. And she continues to lobby, as does everybody else in our group, for the government to listen to them, and, and they haven't done that. Is the family in question still supportive of the vaccine campaign? Do, do they regret it now, or do they still think they, they did the right thing, going out and get the jab in the first place? Yeah, I think they're supportive of the fact of the vaccination campaign. You know, they recognise logically, rationally, that that's the right thing for everyone to do. In their own personal case, clearly, they regret him having it or him having it without access perhaps to more information which could have enabled them to make 
a decision around this. They also recognise that in some instances it's just unlucky. But what they do severely regret is the fact that we don't have a government that is willing to assist them in their time of need. And I think that's what they find truly unforgivable. And the fact that, you know, that the case hasn't really been acknowledged. No one's been there to support them. And and that seems desperately sorry, you know, a desperately sorry situation to be in, given that they did what we were all asked to do, which was to get vaccinated. Sarah, can I ask, has it, has it been difficult for them to, or have they been required, has there been a very high bar in proving that it was the vaccine that caused their problems? Have they been dismissed? Have they been listened to? What's the story? So I think that's that's a good question. In terms of those who have been bereaved, the majority of the Manar group have now in, are now in receipt of death certificates. So on those death certificates, it states categorically that those deaths are a consequence of vaccination, they're secondary to vaccination. So they have, from a medical, from a legal point of view, proof of causation. For those who've suffered the vaccine-induced thrombocytic thrombocytopenia or CVST, the blood clots that we were talking about, they have medical reports that indicate that causation connection of their injury to the vaccine is proven in their cases as well. And what we know about VIT, CVST, which presents after vaccination, is it's very idiopathic. So it, it's a symptom set that is specifically linked with the vaccine. So again, I don't think we're in difficulties there in terms of establishing causation. So from a from a medical point of view, I think where you've got a death certificate or you've got this specific symptom presentation, you don't have an issue in terms of evidencing cause and effect. However, you do when it comes to applying to the government's vaccine damage payment scheme, which is what our group have been trying to do now for the last 18 months or so with no success. And how's that gone? Yeah, so no success, I think, is is a succinct way to put it. So the vaccine damage payment scheme set up in 1979. The point of that scheme is to enable people or to provide somewhere for people to go in these very rare instances where there are um, adverse consequences of vaccines. The state is there to say, look, you did the right thing. You stepped up, you had your vaccination. You were really unlucky um, and we will help to support you financially. But the problem with the existing scheme is that it's antiquated and it's not fit for purpose. And in terms of the logistics around the current scheme, it cannot cope with the amount of people that have applied for compensation or for financial acknowledgement under the scheme. So nobody has been paid out yet. Some of people have now been waiting a year or just over a year and nobody has received any money, despite the fact that these are people with death certificates confirming that the death of their loved ones are secondary to vaccination. So it's quite difficult to understand what further evidence the scheme would need. But I think this goes back to how the scheme structures well. So what it requires is for you to show that you've got 60% disablement in order to qualify for the scheme. It also puts a cap on the amount of money that is paid out by the scheme at £120,000. So it's actually a very high bar to get access to what is a very low amount of money, certainly in sort of legal or personal injury terms, because you'd expect really in a case where somebody is significantly neurologically harmed that you would be looking at compensation perhaps in the millions of pounds because that compensation is intended to ensure that the family are not put in a worse situation than they would have been had it not been for the injury so it takes account of loss of earnings loss of pension ongoing care needs and when you put that figure 
against £120,000, you begin to see that that's a very inadequate sum of money. But not even that has been paid out. In contrast to other jurisdictions where we know people have already started to receive financial support from their governments, unfortunately not in the UK. Now, you're representing 95 uh, cases, but if you look at yellow card data, and and there was a lot said on social media recently about, uh, you know, many, many thousands of adverse events linked to the vaccine. Are there many more out there that haven't come forward yet? I mean, how does that marry up? Because you say it's very rare, but there is this fear out there that, in fact... Mm. The adverse events, the side effects are way more common than than we're being led to believe. Yeah, I think so. So the thing to remember about the yellow card scheme is that it's self-reporting. So doctors can lodge yellow cards, but also anybody, you and I can lodge yellow cards as well. So some people will be reporting headaches, cold-like symptoms, relatively minor symptoms as a consequence of vaccination. And they will all add up into the tallies of figures of people who are reporting problems. So it's subjective. Actually, if you look at the yellow card data, it is broken down into categories of illness. But some of those illnesses will be quite low level and not all of them will be confirmed by doctors either. So yellow cards in themselves are not evidence of causation in any way. They are just people who are quite rightly alerting the MHRA to a possible problem. Whereas our group, you know, we've done a lot of work with them over the last year. As I say, many of them are in receipt of death certificates or do have medical reports which show causation. So R95 is certainly within the most serious of cases. And there will be more cases out there. But I think people have found it very difficult to navigate their way through this problem. You know, lots of them have got additional care needs as a consequence of injury or are dealing with grief. And we, you know, we're still emerging from this lockdown world in which it was impossible to get anyone to talk to you. So I think that has also made people perhaps slower to come forward. And also an overall worry about adding to the risk of vaccine hesitancy. You know, we know that the vaccines are a really important weapon in our armoury against COVID. So nobody wants to be sending an anti-vax sentiment. It's really important that we maintain confidence in the vaccines. However, in my view, part of doing that is to have a vaccine damage payment scheme, which is fit for purpose, which gives people the confidence that if in the very unlikely event something does go wrong, there is a scheme that sits behind that, which will enable people to access financial assistance. And at the moment, that doesn't exist. I'd like your take on why you think it is so hard for people to talk about this subject in a balanced way. Have some of these families been labelled anti-vaxxers for for coming forward? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So we've all seen the shift, haven't we, through the pandemic? You know, there was a point at which you couldn't mention vaccines at all. And then actually, there's been a movement in the discourse a little bit. So some people have been willing to acknowledge that there are these very rare instances, and they are rare, these these problems. But I think what we've all felt is that there's been a very binary discourse around this. So vaccines are either all good or all bad. Well, that doesn't make sense. You know, even a paracetamol has a side effect. If you roll out a vaccine across the whole population, there are going to be a small proportion of people logically, rationally, who are going to have a problem with that. But I think there has been this really fierce binary discourse, which you're either pro-vax or anti-vax. So some of our group have posted things on Facebook, mapping the journey that they've been through with their loved ones, or sort of talking about their grief. And they've had those Facebook posts immediately taken down, presumably because they trigger an algorithm which flags it as anti-vax. And so they're not even being able to grieve or to talk about their circumstances in a normal way. 
for fear of getting this anti-vax label and, and nobody wants to be in that category I don't I mean perhaps a small group of people do but but not our group they recognize their own situation is a minority situation and I'd say probably the message is they're not anti-vax but they are pro-fairness and with a vaccination campaign there's this kind of social contract I think which sits behind it we step up we will do the right thing to protect ourselves and to protect the rest of society but as part of that equation the government ought to protect those very few who don't have a good experience of the consequences of the vaccine. And that's the bit that's missing here. So we're lobbying very hard to get the government to take this issue seriously. And we've had some success. You all know that the COVID-19 public inquiry is due to take place at the beginning of next year. And they've had the terms of reference out for consultation. We have lobbied very hard to ensure that vaccine consequences and the fact of this scheme that doesn't work very well was part of the inquiry. And it's now been confirmed that Baroness Hallett, who will be chairing the inquiry, is recommending that the fact of vaccine injury and the fact of this scheme will be part of those terms of reference. That now has to go to the government unfortunately, to confirm the terms of reference, but hopefully her recommendations will be accepted. And what we will see is a full airing of these issues and hopefully reform of the scheme as part of the inquiry process. But that's a long way off. <laughs> you know, and, and what do our families do in the meantime is the question. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, look, I hope we can come back to you and find out more nearer the time. And thanks very much for finding time to talk to us, Sarah. Not at all. Great to speak to you. Thanks for having me on. Well, I mean, it's exactly as I was saying before, you know, I think that it does no one any favours by denying that these things do happen as rare as they are. They're extremely serious and they need to be acknowledged. And joining us to discuss this is Professor Paul Hunter, a infectious disease expert at the University of East Anglia. Professor Paul Hunter, thank you so much for joining us. You have been looking quite closely at the data over the last uh, year or so at the side effects we've seen from these vaccines. Can you talk us through some of the more severe side effects we've seen and, and how often they crop up? Mild side effects are quite common, but the two side effects that we're, I think, most concerned about is the intracerebral thrombosis, venous sinus thrombosis, which we saw it seen particularly, I think, with the AstraZeneca vaccine and generally in younger women. And Anyway, we're not really using much AstraZeneca vaccine anymore, and we're not using it in younger people. But when we were, we were seeing probably something of the order of about two or three events per million. And of course, that is a, if you get that, that's actually quite a serious disease. I mean, that, that is substantially less than the risk of cerebral thrombosis following actually getting COVID. So that the risk was higher than we would have liked, but substantially less than we were seeing with the disease. And and that was one of the reasons why we, in this country, stopped giving AstraZeneca vaccine to people under 40. And what about the Pfizer vaccine, which we still use? With the Pfizer vaccine, the side effect people have worried about most was the myocarditis and inflammation of the heart. And that was somewhat more common than what we saw with the AstraZeneca vaccine and, and cerebral thrombosis, probably of the order of two or three per 100,000. But we were seeing that also predominantly in younger people. The highest incidence was seen in males of late teenage years. Now, although myocarditis 
can be quite scary when you get it because it causes palpitations and it can cause uh, chest pain and, and so it can be frightening. It generally is a much more milder outcome and most people don't suffer any severe longer term consequences. Mm. Professor Hunter, do we know what is causing these side effects? No, not really. We've sort of got some idea of the mechanism. I mean, myocarditis is an inflammation of the heart and the brain clots with AstraZeneca was probably related to some immune interaction with uh, platelets, which are a part of the blood that help clot the blood if we start bleeding. But why those things are triggered is not clear. At least I'm not aware of it. I think the best guess is that in some ways, these antigens on the virus and indeed in the vaccine are mimicking maybe some antigens on the heart. Antigens are the parts of a cell that our immune system targets. And so I think that's the best guess as to why that is happening. But I'm not aware that that's been definitively proven. One of the things that people who are very concerned about vaccines say is that it's an experimental gene therapy and somehow it's mingling with our DNA and it's, you know, that th- this is the, the upshot, that that's what we're seeing. And because of the experimental nature of it, that that's why uh, th- these problems are being minimised. Is there any evidence of those things? No, I mean, I don't think it... I mean, gene therapy is where you actually change the genetic makeup of a cell and the nucleic acid that's inserted into the cells, these vaccines, doesn't then replicate from what we can gather. And so I don't think it counts as gene therapy. And some of these vaccines, you know, the the, the mRNA vaccines are pretty novel, but the DNA vaccines, the AstraZeneca vaccine, was using technology that isn't totally new by any means. So If people are worried about that, there are other vaccines available that don't have nucleic acid in them. But I think if you've not had the disease and you've not been vaccinated, then you are still quite at risk. So I think even if you're worried about the gene therapy, there are other vaccines that are available that don't have genetic components to them. There is an implication as well in, you know, the idea that Pfizer documents are released under order from a federal judge and and all sorts of things. There's some kind of cover up going on. It sounds like you've looked very closely at the subject of side effects from the vaccine. Yeah, I mean, certainly at the time that when we were rolling the vaccine out, there was a lot of concern about the more serious side effects. And indeed, we were seeing, particularly with the the sort of the intracerebral thrombosis and some quite severe side effects, but very, very rare, you know, one in two or three per million level. But, you know, nothing in life is always perfectly without risk. And and the issue is always, well, are the risks of doing nothing much more severe than the risks of actually doing something? And in the vaccine case, I think all of the evidence collected over the last two years of how this has rolled out has been these vaccines have saved literally millions of lives around the world. Do you think, Professor Hunter, that this is still a delicate subject, even amongst scientists, talking about rare side effects? No, I don't don't think so. I mean, I I think scientists have been talking about these rare side effects quite openly from the point that we knew about them and will continue to do so. And I've written articles on some of these side effects, particularly the thrombosis issue. Yeah, and I think it's important that science is open like that. And I think I think it is. I don't think I I, I don't think there's too much of uh, that anxiety about talking about that. No. 
not too much of a tricky subject. Well, look, thanks so much for finding time to talk to us. It's been enlightening as ever. Cheers. Bye-bye. Hi. Sorry to interrupt your listening, but there's another great podcast from the Mail on Sunday you might want to try. Liz Jones's Diary, the podcast, offering a weekly look into the life of Britain's most unfiltered columnist. That's me. Find us at mailplus.co.uk. I think he makes a really good point that we are having the grown-up conversation about the rare side effects that they happen, trying to explore the ramifications of that on individuals' lives and not ignore it. But the bigger point is that COVID infection has killed and ruined so many more lives and a vaccine that holds that back, even in a small way, is a hugely beneficial thing. And I feel like, I mean, maybe it's just the the fact that social media is a, a very difficult place to get a nuanced debate across. But when you see these posts saying, vaccine injury, this happened to me, my leg dropped off, etc., my heart exploded. It minimises the fact that, you know, th- you know, the misery and death that the, the infection caused itself. I think there's also a lot of a lot of people on the internet who want to play amateur detective and want to try and kind of uncover some hidden truth. I mean, we know whole podcasts are built on such concepts. But, you know, speaking to scientists like Professor Hansi, you hear that this is a discussion that is always happening in the scientific mm. community. All you need to do is go online and read some studies. There are studies, there are hundreds of studies out there looking at these side effects. No one's covering them up. We're talking about them in the scientific community all the time. I mean, it sounds like you're slightly of the same mindset as, as I am, that we know that people make mistakes and we know that people cover up their wrongdoings and it does happen. And they tend to be the same things. It tends to be stealing money or embezzlement or adultery, embarrassing sexual things, at the worst end of the scale, murder or assassinations of presidents. I mean, all these things happen and they're covered up. It's true. Conspiracies occur. But, you know, it would seem like something quite audacious to create. The implication is that they've created this uh, vaccine, that it was completely ineffective. They rolled it out, that it causes these incredible health problems and that somehow that's been hushed up. I don't know. Maybe I'm being really naive. Well, I think we've both over the last 18 months had conversations with some slightly more out there scientists who have tried to tell us that, you know, we don't know what we're talking about. And if you read the research, you'd find that it's actually some sort of gene-modifying therapy which is going to kill us. And the question I always have for them is, well, when's that going to happen? (laughs) Because there's been billions of us being jabbed and the vast majority of us completely healthy and are much better off for it. That doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about the few people who weren't so lucky, but it's important to stress that these vaccines are incredibly safe and incredibly effective. Well, exactly. I think that's the uh, best summary that we could have of the subject. That's all we've got time for today. If you want to know more about what we've been talking about today, you can read all about it in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday and tweet us with any questions or suggestions for Medical Minefield using the hashtag Medical Minefield or email us at health at mailonsunday.co.uk and we'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week. See you then. See ya. See ya.